Please turn with me in your Bibles first this afternoon to the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews. We will be reading only the first three verses of this passage, and then we will move to two other passages, Matthew 6 and Genesis chapter 50. But first, Hebrews 1, beginning at verse 1 through verse 3. Hear the word of our God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we will pick up at verse 24. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 24, and we will read through to the end of the chapter. This is also in the Sermon on the Mount, but a little further on. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will, not, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And now back the very first, uh, very first book of the Bible to Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter of the book of Genesis, and we will pick up at verse 15. Genesis chapter 50, beginning at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. 
So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please, forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And so on. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his own holy word. Well, congregation, oftentimes, especially when we're young, if we're beginning a hike or a bike ride or we're walking along some sort of journey, We may begin that journey full of energy. The backpacks we carry might feel light on our backs. The trail might seem quite doable. And yet, as so often happens in children, I think you can relate to this. As the minutes tick on and the minutes turn into hours, the backpacks begin to feel heavy on our backs. And the trail begins to feel long. And it can be this way in all sorts of things in our life. You think about the school year that's about to start up in in a short while here. We may begin the school year with energy, with excitement, with vision, with hope. And yet, as the months go on, we may begin to feel tired. Or we might begin a new job with energy and vigor. And yet, soon things begin to feel a little bit old. Or we may begin a family or enter a new stage as a family and we begin with confidence that we can carry on in the work God has given us and yet after some time, the burdens of life begin to weigh upon our shoulders and we begin to feel tired. And this can be the case in all sorts of things, can't it? A difficult friendship, a struggling marriage, financial struggles, business struggles, a temptation we may particularly struggle with, a sickness, a handicap, psychological struggles. The tendency we have often in life is to carry these burdens ourselves and begin to be weighed down by them. And yet, if we read our Bibles carefully, we know, don't we, that one of the great truths of Scripture is that we do not have to carry these burdens alone. We do not have to carry these burdens of life alone. Just as an earthly father will gladly take the backpack off his child's back when the trail gets long, so our Lord in heaven will gladly remove the burdens off our backs if we come to him in repentance and faith. And in light of this, the, the title for our sermon this afternoon is very simple. It's, it's this, lay your burdens down here. Lay your burdens down here. First, at the feet of an almighty father. Second, at the feet of an all-giving father. 
and third, at the feet of an all-wise Father. Lay your burdens down here at the feet of an almighty Father, at the feet of an all-giving Father, at the feet of an all-wise Father. And this sermon this afternoon, I'm taking the theme from Lord's Day 9 of our Heidelberg Catechism. And there we find this remarkable description, one of the most beautiful descriptions outside of Scripture of our own Heavenly Father. Question 26 says, What believest thou? When thou sayest, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely, that I have no doubt, but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body, and further, that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears to turn out to my advantage, for he is able to do it, being almighty God, and willing, being a faithful father. Our first point this morning, then, in this regard, is lay your burdens down here at the feet of an almighty father. Lay your burdens down here at the feet of an almighty father. Now, all of us know that consciously or subconsciously, our willingness to place weight upon something has everything to do with how strong we think that something is. In the summer months, some of us likely have gone boating And it's amazing how easily and quickly we jump, or some of us at least jump into these boats and paddle out into water that is far deeper than we could swim in. Why is that? It's because we know that they have the ability to carry us. Or children, you're at a swimming pool during the summertime, and your parents reach out to you and tell you to jump from the edge of the swimming pool into their arms. How do you respond? Usually, if you're a certain age, you run into their arms. You jump. Why? Because you know that they are strong enough to catch you. And it's very much the same way in how we handle the burdens of our body and soul with regards to God. If we look upon God, the triune God, and we see in him one who is strong enough to carry our burdens, to carry our sorrows, then we will with much greater ease lay our burdens down at his feet. One of the passages that provides a remarkable picture of this omnipotence, this all-powerfulness of God, is the passage we began with today, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. If you have your Bibles, I ask that you would have them open as we Look at this passage for a few moments. There we read that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, 
and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I want us to notice first in this passage this simple but remarkable fact that God the Father was powerful enough through his Son Jesus Christ to create absolutely everything in creation. That's a stunning fact that God has the kind of power that can create absolutely everything in creation. A few weeks ago, we were flying as a family from Toronto into the Calgary airport. And because the flight was delayed, we ended up flying into Calgary well into the night rather than earlier in the afternoon. And as we began the descent, all I was thinking about was how we were going to accomplish that two-hour drive home after midnight. And yet, as I was thinking these thoughts of anxious worry, I began to hear from the seat beside me where our little son was seated these exclamations. Amazing! Incredible! Daddy, look at this! And I look over, and he's watching as our plane has begun to bank from high up in the sky into this remarkable, huge bank of clouds. And it's perhaps the first time in his life that he's really seen a plane go into these clouds, and he's filled with wonder at these incredible clouds seen from above. And it struck me as I was writing this sermon later on that this is actually how we all ought to react to creation. We ought to be amazed at creation. Creation is amazing. It's vast. It's complex. It's powerful. It still defies our scientific investigations even after centuries and millennia of investigation. And for some of us who live in places where severe weather tends to hit more often, that severe weather can create a healthy fear in our hearts despite all the technological advances that we've achieved. And all of this, all of creation that we see, is designed to evoke in our hearts a wonder and amazement at the God who created it all. All of creation is screaming about the God who was powerful enough to create it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth shows forth his handiwork. And I want to make this very personal to us here this afternoon. If God was powerful enough to create everything precisely as he wanted it, with the word of his power, then God, our Father, is also powerful enough was also powerful enough to create you precisely as he desired to create you. Job says this in Job 10, You have clothed me. Listen to this, children. You have clothed me with skin and flesh and have fenced, or the word there is the idea of knitted, or enclosed me, With bones and sinews, you have granted me life and favor, and your visitation has preserved my spirit. Now, many of us, or at least some of us, 
spend a lot of time looking in the mirror, either literally or perhaps more figuratively. And as we look at ourselves, we fear that we don't have what it takes to succeed in life. We see the challenges of life. We see our own sins. We see problems perhaps in our families or in our church or in our society. And we think we just don't have what it takes in who we are to deal with the challenges of life. But I want to take this fear that we often have. And I want to run it under the lens of this truth concerning the omnipotence of God. First, I want us to notice that if God was powerful enough to make us anything that he wanted to make us, but he chose to make us precisely as we are, without sin, then he did it for a reason. He did it for a reason. Our gender, whether we are a boy or a girl, God did that purposefully. Our looks, whether we're good-looking or we're more plain, God did that with a specific reason. Or our IQ, whether we are brilliant or we are slower, God did it with a precise, a specific purpose and intention. None of it was an accident. God did not make an accident when he was knitting us together in the womb. We are precisely as God designed us and intended for us to be. He could have made us anything, but he made us as we are. And so instead of looking in the mirror and asking the question, why am I made this way? And being filled with discouragement or anxiety, we should instead ask these questions. What is the unique purpose that God has made me specifically as he has made me? Why did he make me the way I am? What does he intend to use me for? I am a specific tool that he has created What should I be used for? That question, but also this question. How can God's power, how can God's omnipotence shine forth out of my weakness in my life here below? As Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 4, you can read that passage later. How can God's power shine out of my weakness in my life here below? But then we also need to confess this. That if God was powerful enough to knit you, to form you precisely as he formed you, then he has the power that he needs to also change you in the areas that you need to be changed. Your sins, your weaknesses. God has omnipotence. He has all power. He can transform you as you need. And this is particularly the case given what we read at the end of verse 3 in Hebrews 1. Notice, notice this. Speaking here of Jesus Christ. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. That word upholding there has this idea of burden bearing. Like someone might carry a burden on their back. Also the idea of maintaining something, keeping something going as it ought to be going. So this word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has the ability to bear up everything precisely as it is. Maintain everything, all of creation precisely as it is. 
It is God's word that holds every single thing together. So many scientists have asked in the centuries past, what is the glue that holds everything in creation together? What, what is it that holds everything together? In fact, in the mid-1900s, some of you will remember this, some scientists theorized that there was a particle, a subatomic particle, nicknamed the God particle, that held everything together. And interestingly, recently, or perhaps it's now been some years, but in the not-too-distant past, there was some research done in the Large Hadron Collider underneath the French-Swiss border, and scientists believe that they discovered this so-called God particle. And yet, as Christians, we know that it's not a God particle that holds everything together. It's the supreme, all-powerful Word of God. That's what's maintaining everything in its current status quo. And that's stunning. That, that means that you sitting here today and, and myself standing here and, and the pews you're sitting on, the platform I'm, I'm, I'm standing on, and, and the city in which we live, and the country in which we live, and the continental slab on which our country resides, and the universe in which our globe is currently spinning, is all held together by this immense, all-powerful Word of God. It's holding everything together. Why, why does everything not simply disintegrate? Why, why doesn't the law of entropy just take over and, and all of this just dissipate into nothingness? It's because the Word of God is sustaining everything. The all-powerful Word of God is keeping everything as God chooses it to keep on going. And it can't, creation can't stop continuing until God decides that it is to stop. So God's word is, if you will, the God particle that holds everything together. And let me apply this to our lives. Sometimes we say this to each other. Well, I feel like my life is falling apart. I feel like my life, I can't hold things together anymore. But just think about it. We serve a God who is in the business of holding all things together by the word of his power. That's what he does on a second-to-second basis. Does this God not also have the power to hold our lives together, to weave our lives back together even when we feel like they are falling apart? God has the ability to alter our circumstances literally. He has the ability to remove our burdens, the ability to, to replenish our strength, to heal our sin-sick souls. In Isaiah 40, we read this, Remarkable question from God. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. 
and they shall walk and not faint. And this leads us, doesn't it, to our second point this afternoon. Not just lay down your burdens at the feet of an all-powerful God, but also lay your burdens down at the feet of an all-providing God. An all-providing God. Ever since Adam and Eve took that fruit in the garden and they sinned against God and their souls were separated from the favorable presence of God, it has been man's horrible tendency to doubt the goodness of God, to look upon God and see Him as one who is more willing to withhold than to give. And yet one of the greatest antidotes to anxiety in the Christian life is to invert our natural sin-filled image of God and to realize that God is actually an all-providing God for both body and soul. I want us to listen from our passage in Matthew 6 how Jesus Christ exhorts us in this regard. Listen to how he describes our Heavenly Father. And as we do this, I would ask children, if you have your Bibles open, that you would notice four things, four things that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, promises that his Father will provide for us. Four things. And for those of us who are older, I ask also that you notice what I think is something of a a rarity in the New Testament, and that is there are three identical commands in these ten verses. Three identical commands. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Or that can also be translated in terms of adding time onto your life. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now... If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, you will have noticed that the command that was repeated three times in this passage was those three words. Do not worry. Do not worry could also translate that, take no anxious thought. Take no anxious thought. Don't be filled with anxiety. And children, what were the four things that Christ said not to be anxious about? Food, drink, 
clothing, and the future. Food, drink, clothing, and the future. Now, these are simple things. Food, drink, clothing, the future. In some ways, simple things. The most basic components of our lives. And yet, I ask you to consider this. How much of our worry, how much of our anxiety, how much of our stress as we often like to describe it, how much of all that would simply vanish if we obeyed this command of Christ, if we actually believed and obeyed this command of Christ? How much of our stress would not simply dissipate like fog sometimes dissipates under the morning sun if we just believed and obeyed these words of Christ. Imagine this. You, you never, for another moment in your life, have to worry about your food or your drink, the right kind of food, the right kind of drink. Or you never have to spend even 30 seconds thinking about the clothing that you need to purchase or the clothing that you need to wear. Or you never even have to spend one hour creasing your forehead about your future or about your children's future or about your grandchildren's future. How much stress would actually be left in life if we simply believed Christ and removed those from our hearts? And we have to add to this the fact that these four things that I've noted here, and and maybe you could add a fifth there, the four things are not actually meant to be, Christ is not only telling us to only remove those four things. He's actually using those four things as an all-encompassing statement about absolutely everything in life. Do not worry about anything in life. That's what Christ is saying. Don't worry about anything. Now, we might hear this and say, well, what kind of a person lives like that? As if he doesn't have an anxious care in his life. Isn't that an irresponsible person? Or, or a person who is a bit off kilter in his view on life? It's remarkable because the exact opposite is true. The person who takes Christ at his word and lives in a godly manner as if he doesn't have an anxious care in this world is actually the most in touch with reality. Because he most clearly sees that God as his father is fully in control of everything and will provide all that he needs. And this is an incredibly freeing perspective on life. It's an incredibly freeing thing to to have in your heart. It permits Christians to work hard. It permits them to work with joy, with expectation, with hope, with optimism. It permits them to obey that command Christ gives at the end of the passage. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Now I know as we sit here today, this is in one sense an idealistic view, isn't it? Many of us here, or at least some of us, are more like Martha than we are like Mary. We tend to be consumed, anxious about the less important matters of life. We forget the most important things. And for some of us, this will be a burden on our shoulders until the end of our lives. But what an encouragement that in this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of his Father, gives us full permission, if you will, to 
drop our burdens whenever we like, just to let those burdens of soul go upon the Lord whenever we choose. There is a divine, a divine permission of God to let our burdens rest on Him. That hymn that we sing sometimes says it really very nicely. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So we've seen this far, that God is all-powerful. He is able to remove our burdens. God is willing. He is an all-giving God to provide for all that we need. But now we come to this third point, and that is that God is also an all-wise Father. If God were simply all-powerful, and all-giving, but he were not all-wise, we would be in serious trouble in the Christian life. Some of you know parents, you know families, where the parents are very wealthy, and they are willing to give their kids anything their kids want in life. And yet they lack that key ingredient of wisdom. What happens so often? Well, the kids who grow up in this kind of context often end up having a lot of struggles in life because they've, in effect, been spoiled by their parents. And yet God is not at all this way, is he? He's not just all-powerful and all-giving, but he is also all-wise. He knows us. He knows every single person here precisely what we need at precisely the right time. And he wisely dispenses gifts and withholds things particularly in such a way that it will further our walk with the Lord and bring us finally in time to our eternal salvation in heaven. God is a wise Father, perfectly providing us exactly what we need. And if we know anything about our hearts, our foolish hearts, this should be a great encouragement for us. Because if we were in control, then we would completely spoil ourselves. We would give ourselves a future that is entirely sunshine, everything good in life. That would be our natural disposition. But if that were to happen, we would be completely spoiled. We would quickly slip off the road away from God. And so we ought to say, instead of worrying about things, thank God I am not in control. Thank God I am not in control. Thank God that God is in control. Now, the struggle here in terms of this wisdom of God is that even though it is actually the best thing possible for us, it's also the area we struggle with the most in life so often, this wisdom of God. We see God bringing things into our lives. We see the clouds begin to cover our lives. And we begin to ask questions like this. If God is all-powerful, and God is all-giving, and God is all-wise, then what is this in my life? What is this hardship that I never asked for? This difficulty that I simply am not equipped for in my life? What is this spiritual or emotional or relational burden that I certainly do not feel I have the strength to carry? We don't understand God. We don't understand His wisdom. We wrestle with His all wisdom. 
But I want to end our sermon this afternoon by turning us back to that first book of the Bible, that that chapter we read in Genesis 50, to that story of Joseph. That story of Joseph. If anyone in Scripture was tempted to question God's wisdom in his life, it must have been Joseph. Despite faithfully following God from a young age, children, think about that. God saw fit to bring years of relational tension into his life with his family, culminating in him being sold into slavery. And then in slavery, Joseph begins to work hard and obey God, and he's brought into a place of prosperity in the house of Potiphar. And yet, after reaching this high point, if you will, in his life, in in response, it seems, to his greatest act of faithful obedience to God, Joseph is then thrown into jail. Down into the valley he goes. And there he is for quite some time, right as his life seems to be spreading out in front of him. But then, after some time, he's raised up again into a place of power, a place of prestige. And he's brought really to unimaginable heights of power in Egypt. And that's where we find him in this passage, reconciled at last to his brothers. His father has come home. He's been reunited with Benjamin. And here his brothers come to him and they fear that after Jacob dies, Joseph is now going to turn a different face to them and strike them down with his power. But what does he say in verse 19? Fear not. Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now, we don't know, do we, how many struggles Joseph may have had in those dark nights in the prison cell. We don't know how many times he sat there after a long day's work was over and looked up at God and said, Why, Lord? Why? Why me? Why this? We don't know how many times he was tempted, even in sinful anger, to shake his fist at the Lord. We don't know these things. But we do know this, that when all was said and done, Joseph could not but confess this perfect wisdom of God in his imperfect and often troubled life history. Joseph now is finally looking in the rearview mirror of his life. And he sees that although there were people and circumstances in his life that seemed to want to bring all sorts of evil and trouble into him, over top of it all, the quiet, the caring, the fatherly hand of God was wisely superintending it all and turning every evil thing for good. You thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. And this confession of Joseph at the end of his life is what we could describe as the pinnacle of anxiety-removing biblical mind renewal for the Christian. The pinnacle of anxiety-reducing biblical mind redual for the Christian. When we can look at our past, we can look at our present circumstances, we can look off into the unknown future, we can look at all the people and the circumstances around us, and we can confess that despite all appearances, God's fatherly hand 
is ruling over it all. And this, if you look back in church history, has been such a medicine for the soul, such a medicine for the soul, for countless anxiety-ridden Christians. And so I want to end this sermon this afternoon by leaving you with a question. And that question is this. As you look over these trials and the burdens and the struggles of your life, what good might God see fit to bring out of those evils? As you look over the trials and the burdens and the struggles of your life, what good might God see fit to bring out of those evils? Will God use your current trial to one day bring unspeakable comfort to a struggling friend? Will God use your current burden of life to one day lift the crushing load of another brother or sister? Will God one day use your current spiritual struggle to one day be an instrument for the saving of a soul from an eternal fire of hell? What good might God see fit to bring out of your current struggles in life? Amen. Let's close in prayer.